right, let's go to the Dude Maker Comrex Maker Hotline here on a, the the uh, Saint Andrew's Day here, November the thirtieth, twenty twenty-two. There on the Crusade Channel, the Mike Churchill, Brother Andre Marie at the Saint Benedict Center is uh, standing by. Bro- brother, a blessed Saint Andrew's Day to you. How are you? Um, I'm well. Happy Andromus to you too, Mike. Is it really an Andromus? It's called Andromus. Yes, that today is Andromus uh, Day, uh, meaning the Feast of St. Andrew. Feast of St. Andrew. Andromus. Okay, Andromus. Ander- Andromus. Ander. A-N-D-E-R-M-A-S. Got it. Andromus. All right, I got it. Uh, I, I was looking back to see if last year, if we had a discussion about this, and we had a discussion about this last year um, because the podcast is, is there. So apparently we talked about it. It wasn't on Andermus. It was on the day before uh, Andermus, but we did have a discussion about it. Fiorella and I talked about it earlier uh, today, uh, and I was reading about it in, uh, in my liturgical year from Dom Prosper Garanger. Um, Brother, uh, St. Andrew... What, okay, so Advent hinges on the day that Andromus occurs, correct? Um, yes, so it's defined, the, the first Sunday of Advent is defined as the Sunday that's closest to the Feast of St. Andrew, which is November 30th. So the, this past Sunday, fitting that description, it is now the, um, it is now, we're now in Advent, yes. So, uh, any idea of oh, uh, uh, how the church picked the Feast of St. Andrew for this distinction here? Um, that I don't know. I mean, there's a, there's an, sort of a, an evolution of, of Advent. I think the biggest contributions to Advent were by a French bishop whose name escapes me. Um, but it was, uh, you know, it would, I, I think... There were different datings for it. Mm-hmm. So the French bishop, um, who was from Tours, dated it beginning with the Feast of St. Martin. So Martinmas, by the way, another must feast, Martinmas, which is the 11th of November, and which all throughout Europe was traditionally a day for feasting on goose. Um, Martinmas was uh, the day before the beginning of Advent in many places. Uh, and in fact... It- I think in some strict Benedictine monasteries, like I believe the monks, uh, I could be wrong, but I think that the monks out in uh, Silver City uh, who make the coffee uh, at Our Lady of Guadalupe, yes. um, those, I think that their advent begins on the day after um, St. Martin's Day, Martinmas. Uh, Father Damien said something uh, fascinating about, about this, what you just said on Sunday, and he said that our brethren in the East that the date that was fixed for Christmas, that sometime in the third century, I believe, he said, that the Greeks stayed with the Julian calendar, and that's why their Christmas is still January the 6th, and that the Roman church went with the Gregorian, or the calendar of St. Gregory, and that's why it's on December the 25th. No, that's not it. It's 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 got nothing to do with the distinction between the Julian and the Gregorian calendar. The Gregorian calendar didn't come into effect until 1582. So, uh, and it came in, and we and we can date that really easily because it's the it went into effect the very night of the death of Saint Teresa of Avila. So the night that she died was the longest night in the history of the world because it was 11 days. <laughs> so, <laughs> so everybody everybody went that year. Everybody went to bed on October 4th. 
the Feast of St. Francis of Assisi, and they woke up on October 15th. Eleven days got chopped out of the calendar by virtue of the order of the Pope, yes. um, one of the Gregories, I think the 13th, but don't quote me on that. Um, and then, um, uh, so her feast is the 15th of October. It should have been the 5th of October, which is St. Placid, if that, hadn't, if that weird thing hadn't happened that particular year. So, um, so th- that the, 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 but the reason that there's a difference is because the Greeks always celebrated the Epiphany as what we call Christmas. I yes. Mean, that, to them, that was their big deal. And it's a much, I mean, even in the West, technically the Epiphany is a higher ranking feast than Christmas, at least historically. Um, but, uh, and, you know, to the Gentiles, Epiphany is more relevant than Christmas in a sense. And under a certain formality, because the the, uh, the Christmas was an intimate thing for a bunch of Jews, um, and that's not I'm not speaking disparaging language. That's just the fact. Our Lady was a Jew. Saint Joseph was a Jew. Um, the shepherds were Jews. Um, this is a Jew, very Jewish thing. Yes. As distinguished from the Epiphany, where the wise men from the East come with their entire retinue, there is a bunch of Gentiles. So the the Epiphany is sometimes called the Christmas of the Gentiles. By the way, so. Um, I think that may be some of the reasons, but, you know, we have a sermon from St. John Chrysostom, who obviously knew of the dating of Rome, and obviously knew that December 25th is the way that it was celebrated, the date on which it was celebrated, and St. John Chrysostom, who died in the year 407, said this. He said, Christmas happened on December 25th, Jesus Christ was born on December 25th, and if anybody knows this, it's the Romans, and the Church of Rome always respected that the Feast of uh, Christmas was December 25th, and and the Romans actually should know because they had the records of all these things. Yes. Um, He's arguing from the fact that the Romans had the census records. So whether or not, you know, uh, the, the Pope had access to the Roman census records is, uh, uh, I'm sure, something which is a question of fact, which perhaps scholars could discover that or not. But that was St. John Chrysostom's argument, and uh, it's one of the many um, reasons we can defend the December 25th as the actual date for the birth of our Lord. The Greeks don't say he was born on January 6th, but they what they celebrate is January 6th is to them more important than Christmas. Yeah, I'm just uh, scanning through it. Uh, Don't prosper here today, and it's just uh, some amazing. Uh, if you had the liturgical year, it'd be a good. Uh, this is a good day to start uh, to start reading it on uh, November the 30th because he has so many details in here, including like the translation of the relics, like Saint Andrew's. Saint Andrew's relics were somewhere, and then during the reign of Pius II, they were discovered, and then his head was, as they say, translated then to Rome, and it's it's in the Basilica of St. Peter. So that's where that's where the relics are. And what, uh, uh, of course, what you have to factor into that is that uh, most, many parts of what remains of Western, Northern Europe, if you will, now are not what they looked like at, in the early days of Christianity. That you know, Turkey is of course Turkey now, and is filled with with with, with Muslims, um, and and so the landscape is is, is very much different. Uh, brother, uh, I was asking Fiorella today if she had any knowledge of how the legend got started, or if there is a or of the legend uh, that Saint Andrew traveled to what we call the United Kingdom today. Anything on that? Do you have uh, any any uh, anything to add? 
Uh, wait, wait, that St. Andrew traveled to the, what, what's known as the United Kingdom? Is that what you're saying? Yes. Then he actually made yeah. it to the British island. Well, I, I mean, okay, so he is the patron saint of Scotland, and, and the oldest flag in the world, which is the Scottish flag, has on it the Saltair. By the way, that was the basis for the Confederate Saltair flag. Yes. Um, because there were so many Scotsmen in the South. But uh, the, the Saltair, the X, which was, the, the, you know, St. Andrew was crucified on a cross, but not on the kind of cross that our Lord was crucified on, or the upside-down version that St. Peter was crucified on, the younger brother of St. Andrew. But St. Andrew was crucified on an X, on a, on a um, Saltair. So um, that's where we get a lot of our heraldry that's relating to St. Andrew, including the Scottish flag. Whether or not, I, 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 I have not read that he actually went to Scotland. Um, some of his relics may have been taken there. I think actually that, I, I'm thinking that it, it probably has something to do with his relics being taken there, and I'm thinking perhaps that might have something to do with uh, during the Crusades, his relics were maybe taken there. But um, the, uh, I'd actually have to do some research on that to find out the exact connection. Yeah, I think I, at one time I knew, but but I have a I have a memory that is uh, has this amazing quality, like a sieve, you know. <laughs> I have a sieve. I have a sieve memory too, uh, but it it only leaks important things like anniversaries and birthdays. Oh dear! <laughs> it it doesn't leak irrelevant nonsensical information that uh, that seems to go in and never come out. Uh, Brother Andre Marie is on the uh, Dude Maker Comrex Maker Hotline here with us for another Wisdom Wednesday here on the on Saint Ander Mass as uh, as we we learn here today. And I, I am asking uh, men out there to start a- acting all Saint Andrew ee and stuff because Saint Andrew is another one that was martyred. Uh, uh, all the apostles were martyred. Of course, uh, John, St. John the Evangelist survived his martyrdom when they dunked him in oil. Uh, so it, it, it seems that, well, that's not true because, well, no, it is. But St. Andrew, as brother said, was was uh, was crucified on the Solterra cross. And it appears as though the people that martyred him didn't nail him to it, though. They just tied him to it. Uh, th- yeah, it appears that way, and which would explain why he and preach. So even in his crucifixion, he was an apostle. Um, I explained to our students this morning um, at our assembly, I said, you know, um, St. Andrew is a model of perseverance, but he's also a model of something else, which is kind of necessary for us to have perseverance, I think, because it's also related to fortitude, and that is promptitude in the service of God. Mm. St. Andrew is known as the protoclete, and um, what does protocletes mean? Well, protocletos in Greek means first called, right? So the word ch- church, uh, ecclesia in Greek, comes from um, th- this word call, right? E- e- called out, literally, is what the church means. Those who are called out of the mass of humanity to baptism, to grace in this life and glory in the next, that's what the church is. Uh, the, uh, the, so that's ecclesia. Protoclete, right, uh, means first called. And St. Andrew was the first called, and he responded immediately. So he's the one who went to his younger brother, St. Peter, and said, we have found the Messiahs. And then shortly after that, in the instance recorded, recorded in today's gospel, Matthew 4, our Lord's walking by um, in, in, in Galilee on the, on the um, shore of the uh, uh, Lake of, of Galilee, 
the Sea of Galilee, pardon me, it's, it's got like three or four names. Um, he, as he's walking um, on the shore, he calls Peter and Andrew and he says, come follow me. And they put down their nets uh, and followed him. And so too did the sons of Zebedee, uh, James and John. And this would be James uh, the Greater and, and, his, and his younger brother, St. John the Evangelist. Uh, they put down their nets and they left their father, Zebedee. It's like, bye, Dad. We're going to follow this guy. So See ya. <laughs> the, 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 uh, the four of them, those four, those four among whom Andrew was the first, the first called, those, they were so prompt and immediate in the service of God and responding to their literal vocation from the lips of God himself. Yeah, I'd say uh, the story of the uh, the apostles is is good reading. Uh, I, I, I was, I was going to ask you one more uh, uh, question about um, the, uh, the the life of Saint Andrew and of uh, uh, Saint Peter. Uh, I believe I read correctly in Don't Prosper that Saint Andrew hailed from Bethsaida. Um, I think that is correct. Yes. So Bethsaida is also, isn't that uh, where our Lord goes to on the day of his ascension? Our Lord condemned Bethsaida, by the way. Uh, woe to the Korotsai and woe to the Bethsaida. Um, for if in Sodom and Gomorrah the miracles are worked in you had been worked in them, they would have done, done penance and um, sackcloth and ashes long ago. Uh, I'm going by memory, so that might be the King James Version or something. Um, but that was a joke, by the way. I'm, I'm just insulting the King James Version. Uh, the, so, uh, but when you go to the, um, yes, yeah, so, uh, so, yeah, the, the, all of the apostles except for Judas were from Galilee, were from, you know, the northern, what, what was the remnants of the northern kingdom, huh? above Samaria, um, whereas Judas uh, was from um, Judea. Although St. John was known to the high priests, uh, which uh, he says himself, in the history of our Lord's Passion. So he, his, I think his family spent a lot of time in Judea, but uh, I still think he was, we, we know from his being called that he was, um, he was there fishing with Zebedee. Uh, so, and, and that was in the north in Galilee. So, yeah, um, um, just because St. Andrew came from there doesn't mean that they fared well because our Lord actually condemned the city. <laughs> so much for origins, so much right? For <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, brother, brother, I was going to to, to, to say that uh, I've been reading uh, parts of, as much as I can on the morning, of the Apocalypse lately. And today I read Apocalypse chapter 12. And I read it in uh, uh, Loretto Press's Haydock Bible. So uh, I was curious to, to hear, and I, I, I'm sure that there's something on Catholicism.org that I could read about chapter 12 of the Apocalypse, because it says about Our Lady giving birth, but it's actually, uh, it, it's what the evangelist is talking about is the church, right? Well, okay, so yeah, I, I, I have an I have an explanation of that. Um, yeah, because of course there's a Marian reading of the, of, the, of the Apocalypse twelve. There's a Marian reading of the um, the woman of the Apocalypse, the woman who's um, let's see, she's standing she's standing on the sun. No, she's standing on the moon. The sun is at her back, and she has a, a crown of twelve uh, stars on her head. Right? Yes, beautiful. This is the vision. The, this is the vision of Our Lady in the Apocalypse. Now, um, so there has been a Catholic reading of it, which is Marian in character, to say that this is a, a vision of Our Lady. 
But then there's a little problem, and of course, um, uh, the, the more <clears throat> polemical um, anti-Marian Protestant apologists will um, focus on this and say, look, you've, you've got a contradiction, you stupid Catholics, because that same woman that's described by St. John in the Apocalypse goes on to give a painful childbirth. And you folks say that the, the Blessed Virgin Mary uh, did not have the, the pangs of birth when, when she gave birth to Jesus. Well, uh, so as St. Thomas would say, respondeo, I answer um, that it's not the birth of our Lord that St. John is describing. It's the birth of, of the rest of the members of the mystical body. Our Lady is the mother, not only of the head, but also of all of the members of the whole Christ. The whole Christ is what St. Thomas called, what Saint, excuse me, St. Augustine called the church. So, you know, Christus totus caput et membris, the, the, the whole Christ, the, the head and the members. She's the mother of all of us. So, it wasn't painful for her to give birth to our Lord. Right. It was painful for her at the foot of the cross when the church was born out of the pierced side of our Lord to give birth to the rest of us. That, that's where she experienced, and, and so mystically speaking, that's what's being related there in the apocalypse, that she had this painful birth of the rest of Christ's members. So you silly Catholics aren't silly Catholics at all. That's right. <laughs> well, and then I, 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 I read the whole chapter, so then I read the, the, uh, uh, the account of the great battle, the great war that happened in heaven. Uh, with the the good guys, if you will, being led by Saint Michael the Archangel, and the bad guys being Satan and Lucifer, and Satan and Lucifer on the losing end, and are cast upon the earth. Uh, and uh, some of you may go, "Come on, TKD, this is like remedial stuff." Well, no, it isn't because I haven't read the Book of the Apocalypse. I told you, I've been honest about this, so I'm finally getting around to it, and I get to chapter 12 today. And um, uh, you know, as someone that that says Saint Michael prayer twice a day. Uh, in Latin, and I hope, brother, you taught it to me correctly in Latin. I have it correct now. Uh, I found the story of the of, of the battle in in heaven and St. Michael and the demons warring it out. Uh, it, it was almost like, wow, somebody ought to make a movie about this. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You could do. There's so much you could do. I mean, um, you know, the, these these guys that waste their time making stuff like the Mandalorian and stuff. Like that. I mean, you, you, they, they could do some interesting things with this, but I don't trust any of them. So uh, maybe it's good that none of them attempted. Right. Um, the uh, but when you when you uh, when you look at that that passage in Saint um, John's Apocalypse chapter twelve, uh, there's a context there that's very interesting. Um, so some, some of you have probably heard the typology of Mary as the new ark, right? So she's the, new, she's the ark of the new covenant. And if you open up the uh, book of the Apocalypse, keep, keep, keep one thing in mind. Um, St. John didn't write the book of the Apocalypse, and none of the inspired authors wrote the books that they wrote, breaking it up into chapters and verses. The chapters were, were invented by Catholics, some Catholic monk whose name, it, it, um, it might have been Rabanus, I forget who it was. but The guy that wrote the, the, the Go Anaphons. The pro no, the Protestants gave us the Protestants gave us the uh, the verses. So um, 
the, uh, the, the, we broke up the, the, the thing into chapters, which means that when St. John wrote, he didn't write it in chapters. So he wrote just one continuous narrative, one continuous book. Uh, and later on, it was broken up into chapters. So that, that, that's kind of important to, to realize when we consider this. Look at chapter 11 of the Apocalypse. Towards the end of chapter 11, St. John is describing the heavens opening. And what does he see in the heavens? The Ark of the Covenant. That's at the very end of chapter 11. Chapter 12 begins, And I saw a great sign in the heavens, a woman clothed with the sun and uh, 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 the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars, etc. Um, Scott Hahn pointed out that when we factor in the, 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 the known uh, truth that there were no chapter markings, we can read this as a continuous narrative. That that Our Lady actually, uh, that Our Lady who is the Ark of the New Covenant, perhaps is actually literally standing on the Ark of the Covenant in heaven. Now, what would the significance of this be when you look at the history of arks in the in the East, or in the what we would call, I guess, the Near East or the the Middle East? Um, the, the nations that surrounded the Jews had arks. They had the, this kind of sadia kind of thing, like what is described in the Book of of um, Exodus. Uh, only in every case, they were seats of feminine divinities. Mm. So you had these like statues of female, of, of goddesses on top of these things. Now, <coughs> and they, excuse me, I, I need to learn how to use my mute button like you do, Mike. You're a pro, I'm not. Um, but when you look yes, at the... Yes, but I try um, and teach my people that learn how to use the mute button. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, anyway, uh, yeah, sorry. So when next time I go to cough, I'll do that. Um, so bottom line is the uh, the the the. the, the in, in these cases, in the with the like the the Sumerians and the Assyrians and these other people who were heathen who had their own arcs, they would be like these angel wings, and those angel wings form the seat of this feminine divinity. Well, we have the 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 the, the um, was it seraphim on the ark? We have the angels on the ark. Their wings um, spread towards each other, but nothing seated on there. And you know what's interesting is it was called the mercy seat. Right In the Old Testament, the way that it was described when God gave the directions to build this thing um, to two guys, Oliab and I forget the other guy's name, and he gave them directions to build it, and that was to be called the propitiatory or the mercy seat. Well, that's where St. John, if we read it in Scott Hahn's reading, that's where St. John has Our Lady seated, is on the, or standing, on the mercy seat. Hmm. So... Anyway, that, I, I wasn't thinking we were going to talk about this, but, but this is the thing that actually very much excites me because I'm really into that particular typology. No, it's beautiful. And uh, I think, especially this time of year, there because there is a lot of typology. Um, and, and by the way, there's an early episode of Reconquest. Brother, uh, maybe you know the numbers. You and Sister Maria Philomena... And you're, you're, in a, you're in a Jeopardy-type war. Do you remember this? No. Yeah, she's going like, okay, well, this is a type that's in the book of numbers, and it's... Uh, da, 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 da. 
say to you, brother, okay, well, this is a type, and it's in the book of Daniel. And the sister goes, like, I'm not out yet. I'm not finished. This is a type. <laughs> this okay, was, yeah. yeah. I, I it was think a I fun show. It was, it was fun to hear you two go back and forth with the types. Only sister doesn't talk like a valley girl. <laughs> this is true. This is true. Maybe that uh, just is, uh, that's my go-to female voice, because I don't have one. <laughs> I have a whiny female or a valley girl. Pick one of the two. <laughs> and I don't want to do either for sister, so I'll just, no, quote, no. I'll just quote her as a man. <laughs> but then she would be like, really, Mike? You made me sound like a guy? Come on. <laughs> but you did have this, this, this dialogue and this exchange about types, since you mentioned types. Yeah, I mean, and, and the Old Testament is riddled with um, types of great, the greater realities that will be met with in the New Testament. Um, definitely. I mean, to the detail of the apostles, right? So we have the 12 apostles. Today's a few save an apostle. We have the 12 apostles, and there were in the Old Testament the 12 sons of Jacob, right? The 12 sons of Israel, Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, and therefore from them the 12 tribes of Israel. And then what I was going to follow up, uh, since, I, since I mentioned it, and we're on Apocalypse 12, and we'll move on now. Uh, I believe in that show, or in another show you and Sister did together, uh, the eagle that is mentioned in Apocalypse, is, isn't St. John the Evangelist, isn't his kind of sign, bird sign, the, uh, I, I forget how you, you, you characterize it, but isn't he the eagle? Yes. Okay. So there's a vision in Ezekiel the prophet um, of the four living creatures. And, um, and the description is very, very psychedelic. I mean, um, it is, it is, and it's read for most matins of the Feast of uh, Evangelists, not the apostles, but evangelists. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, on their feasts, you're going to read, um, the, the matins reading is going to include this, this very um, mystifying um, passage an obscure passage from the from the book of Ezekiel, and um, it, it's interesting because Saint John's both his gospel and the apocalypse borrow a lot of stuff from Ezekiel, and I'm saying borrow. Not to say that he wrote them from scratch and just sort of cheated um, as if as if God didn't inspire him. In the inspiration of St. John, there was a lot of borrowing from um, Ezekiel the prophet to all kinds of interesting, minute details. But uh, Ezekiel the prophet saw this vision of these four um, animals. They, they were an, they were angels like they had they had these angelic wings, but they had. One was the one had the face of a man. One with the face of an ox. One with the face of a um, not 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 an ox, a bull. Uh, the, another the, the, a lion, and uh, the last was the eagle. And the eagle was on top of all four. Well, Saint John has this same um, quartet in his apocalypse, and the 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 various various commentators have come into a sort of consensus of which evangelist is which. Saint John himself is the eagle because he flew the highest, as if to you know in in the myth in the mythology of the ancient world at that time they believed that eagles could uh, their eyes were so powerful that they could stare directly into the sun without flinching or without damaging their eyes, and Saint John was the eagle who flew higher and looked directly into the son of Christ's divinity because of that amazing prologue and that he has mo the most about our Lord's divinity in, um, in his gospel. One of the uh, uh, Discovery Channel uh, animal guys, Jeff, I want to say it was Jeff Corwin, actually just to that end, 
and we'll end on this note, did a show on that, and they wanted to find out. They were saying it's said that an eagle can see as far away as as far away as the horizon is. An eagle eye really is an eagle eye. He can actually see. So they wanted to test this theory. So they put a GoPro camera on an eagle, and then they had determined that he was that this particular eagle was flying in this territory. And he was stalking this prey, or she was rather, for her baby eagles. And so they went and they captured, and they were they went and took a picture, and they made a model of this prey. I forget what it was. It was another kind of bird. And then when the eagle was way far away, they were going like, "Oh, how far away is it?" She's like six miles out. They then very loudly introduced the model of this bird, whatever it was, to see if the mama eagle from that distance would see the bird and then alter her course to get a closer look to see if this was dinner for the chicks. Sure enough, <laughs> she saw it from such a great distance and then made the move on the uh, on, on the prop, if you will. And, of course, they immediately hid the prop because you don't want to get in a tussle with an eagle. Okay, I'll take your word. I'll take your word for it. An eagle's a massive bird. You, you if you've ever seen, I have seen them. You ever seen a bald eagle up close? <clears throat> Not up close, no. Well, I got within a hundred feet of one in, in nature. I've seen, I, I saw him like perched, and I'm like, that just can't be. They are massive birds. You're talking six, seven foot wingspan. Uh, you, you see this thing flying from a distance. You go like, oh, it's not so big. It's cute. No, it's not cute. And you don't want to get him mad at you. All right, brother, explain to us your ad rim today. Or give us a 30,000-foot uh, view of, but the church really is just a building. Uh, um, well, um so I begin with it saying how in various um, controversies I've had, or conversations, let's put it that way, with non-Catholic uh, Christians, um, and we're talking about the nature of the church, there is this observation on the part of my counter number that, uh, well, you know, the church isn't a building. And as I point out in the article, it's funny how it's never, this is never said in direct response to me saying, hey, you know, the church is a building. Uh, because, and, and in other words, it hasn't come up in the conversation at all. And I'm realizing they're just sort of um, riffing on a, a, a theme they've heard talked about by their various preachers. Um, and then, so the whole thing is a ref based on this that, well, wait a minute. I, you know, the whole time, I've, you know, all these years I think I've been doing it wrong because I've been agreeing with them and saying, well, yeah, the church is something greater than just the brick and mortar thing. It's, it's you know, it's this mystical institution. It's the supernatural institution. It's not purely material, though it's made up of humans who have matter. Um, but, you know, the church really is just a building when you think about it because Jesus is a builder. I, on this rock, I will build my church, right? Um so St. Paul describes the church as built on the foundation of the prophets and apostles, Jesus Christ being the chief cornerstone. So if we, if we appreciate the biblical data on the subject, the church is a building. So, um, but, what, but what's the nature of that building? That's the question. And uh, it, we are the stones. We are the living stones, St. Peter says. Uh, we are the living stones uh, that the church is built upon. But of course, we have to be built upon the cornerstone Christ, the, the prophets and apostles, as St. Paul says. And uh, we're, we're all living members of that building. So, yeah, yeah, the church is a building. The question is just, what's the nature of that building? Uh, 
Um, I think some people in their in their sort of hyper anti materialism want to rush to this conclusion. Well, we're not talking about brick and mortar. Well, don't be that superficial, please, because the the, the scriptural language is that the church is a building. And, uh, and in fact, when you look at, when Jesus said, on this rock I will build my church, in Matthew, in, um, that comes in Matthew chapter 16, right? That's verse 18. Yep. You, look at, you look at the context, and I don't mean the, the textual context, which sounds redundant, but I mean the actual geographical context that our Lord was in. Where were they? They were in Caesarea Philippi. What was Caesarea Philippi? It was this city built by Philip, who was being a lickspittle, naming it after um, Caesar. There were no, no, numerous Caesareas in the world because every local lickspittle leader who wanted to uh, uh, impress Caesar built a city in his honor. Only um, uh, in Caesarea Philippi, Philip, this is the brother of Herod, by the way, uh, Philip, the Tetrarch, decides he's going to build a temple to the god Caesar. Remember, mm. the Romans revered Caesar as a god. That's right. So he built this huge heathen temple, and it's on this gigantic outcry of rock. And so in and and if you look at the context where our Lord is, he's there in a valley beneath this this enormous rocky outcropping that has an enormous pagan temple on it. And you've got these little specks of men in comparison uh, standing beneath it. And Jesus says to one of them who's just made this um, earth-shattering profession of faith because of the grace of the Father that was given to him to make it, thou art Peter and on this rock I will build my church. Jesus is standing in the shadow of a huge chunk of rock with a huge temple on it. And he's talking about, yeah, well, I'm going to construct my church on this rock. So I had never heard this or anyone expound upon this, brother. This is fascinating. There is an amazing, um, you know, when you take the building language in Scripture, it's all over the place. I mean, St. Paul calls himself as a wise architect, um, and I think it's 1 Corinthians 3, um, and where he talks, we, we talked about this in connection with purgatory uh, on, on the Feast of All, on, on, the, on All Souls Day, but it also has con- a connection to this, because he's talking about building on the foundation, which is Christ. No man can build on any other foundation but Christ. Uh, and that, that's where we get the thing about building, you know, wood, wood, hay, or stubble, or gold, silver, and precious stones. So, and don't confuse any of this Caesar, Caesary Philippi with Caesary Polakai. I just wanted to make sure that everyone... Oh. <laughs> I had to do it. I had to do it. Uh, finally, brother, in your ad rem, you talk about the dedication of St. Mary Major at Rome. So I have a final question for you about Advent. And it has to do with, uh, if you read Don't Prosper Garger in the liturgical year. By the way, you can, re- you can win all 15 volumes provided by Loretto Press. Uh, basically, he gave them to us. And they have yourself a merry or manly little Christmas. It's one of the three prize packs is the liturgical year. Uh, it's an investment that has no price, but Doug does sell it for a price. But we have a set for you. Uh, Don Prosper uh, reminds us that the four Sundays of Lent all have stations in Rome. Just as the Sundays in, I'm sorry, Advent. Just as the stations in Lent 
uh, or the Sundays in, in Lent have stations. And the first one is St. Mary Major in Rome. So you want to uh, just uh, give our listeners, especially those maybe that are converting to the faith or reverting or don't have never even heard about stations, what is, when, when, when he says, and the station is at St. Mary Major, can you explain to our listeners what that means? So in the in the early church in Rome in the first few centuries, this, this got. Uh, I mean, later in the Middle Ages, it, this got changed as, as the Christian population of Rome grew. I mean, at one point, all the Christians of Rome could fit into a church, one church. Uh, later, or most of them, right? So later on, that that was not possible. Anyway, um, so what would happen was that was the church where Saint where the Pope would say mass. And there would be this concourse of Christians that would go in procession to, to go to the uh, stational church that day. Mm. Um, and, and station just comes from, you know, where you stand, huh? Right. Uh, that, that it, it comes from Stostari Steady Stetis, which means to stand. So uh, the station, like the 14 stations of the cross, you know, you stand in these 40 different places. So the stational church was where they stood to worship that day, um, when, where the Pope went to go say Mass. And the stational churches are very important because they're, they're ancient churches, and, and many of these churches have an awful lot of traditions connected with them. During the Lent, and, um, during Lent, for instance, the stational churches were very important because some of the churches were picked because of their catechetical value that they had for the catechumens. Mm. And the and, and like if you attentively read Dom Guerranger, which I recommend to everybody, but um, if you attentively read Dom Guerranger, you'll find that some of the stational churches they actually Actually, the, the story of the martyrs who are honored in that particular church is sort of woven into the mass that day. Right. Um, so that kind of thing happens. There's a, um, I think there's a St. Cyril and Methodius come into one of the collects for, uh, it might be one of the Sundays in in Lent, and it has something to do with the stational church, because I think it was in that church that the relics of St. Cyril Methodius are. Uh, not Cyril Methodius, um, another set of brothers uh, who were f physicians. Cyril Methodius were the apostles of the Slavs. Their relics are actually in San Clemente in Rome, but um, yeah, um, uh, it's not coming to me. The two brothers who were physicians. Um, uh, uh, one starts with a D. Oh boy. Um, so that's that. Uh, so the stational churches were basically churches where the Pope celebrated Mass that day, and there would be a huge concourse and a procession of Christians to go to that church for it. And all of you should go in. If you want to follow up on uh, what Brother was talking about in his ad rim, go to Catholicism.org, and you can actually sign up for the ad rim, and uh, Brother will email you when a new one comes out. This one's title is, But the Church Really Is Just a Building. Uh, that building that you refer to in the in the graphic image at Catholicism.org, uh, that's the island of St. Michael, right? That is, uh, yeah, Mont Saint-Michel, yes. Yes, beautiful. It's, it, it, uh, go there and tell me the, that there isn't one true holy Catholic and apostolic church, and tell me how they built that thing. It's funny because, you know, when I write something on the church, the temptation of so many Catholics is just to grab a picture of St. Peter. And 
I, I, you know, I, I, something in me recoils against that because a everybody else does it, and I don't do what everybody else does. So, uh, and that's not a pride thing. It's just I don't, I don't want to be that unoriginal. So, um, I, I, I oftentimes just grab the Pope's Cathedral, which of course is St. John Lateran or the Church of the Holy Savior. Right. Um, so then, then I'm like, you know, well, every Catholic church can 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 be used. Sometimes I'll deliberately use uh, Eastern Rite, you know, or even Orthodox churches to show you that my concept of the church isn't strictly Occidental. And then I realized, you know, so when I'm going to do this one, I'm like, okay, I'm doing another article on the church. I got to find an image for it. What the heck am I going to use? And I found a couple and wasn't satisfied with them. And then I said, wait a minute, Mont Saint-Michel, there's got to be some good picture of Mont Saint-Michel. And the first one I found was, of course, on Shutterstock or something where they would have sued us into oblivion if I had used it without paying for it. But it was gorgeous because it was lit up at night. Um, So then I I quickly abandoned that and then found this one on uh, on Wikipedia. Uh, And and, uh, yeah, I had to attribute the the guy who did it, but that's okay. Well, if you ever need a Shutterstock image, I have an account. So uh, we have to keep one because we get sued all the time. I get letters from, oh, I used to get them once a month until I started, uh, until David helped me write a letter and response, and I wrote back, I'm like, you don't have a case. I didn't do it for profit. I profited, I I can send you the letters, Uh, and I've never received another threat. I received threats that this is going to cost you $25,000 in court cost alone, and then the fines are up to $250,000. I'm like... Because this bimbo stumbled past an image of this and took a picture of it, which there are 40 million more, and you claim copyright on it, please. And by the way, it's an image in a public place. Uh, Don't mess with me, Lebowski, when it comes to copyright and trademark law, because I studied it for a little while. I couldn't be a trademark lawyer, but I could be a copyright one, because I own about 180 of them. And you know what? People violate them every day, brother, and I don't care. (laughs) <laughs> well, people take, yeah, by the way, the one that Maggie just dropped in the room, that's the one I would have gotten sued for using. Um, that's exactly it. Well, I she, said, did a screen, I, I said, she did a screenshot of it, so she, you're, she's clear. <laughs> and I do screenshots, too, but I don't want to have to battle that in court. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, uh, okay, you, I'll, I'll uh, tell you how to battle that without going to court someday off air. I'll, I'll give you the, okay, I'll, send you, right. I'll send you the letter. Because that's a public image, and that is there's no improvement with that f- photograph. There's no, you're not improving on the work of art. That's the defense. The Supreme Court's already ruled on it. You're good to go. These people are liars and shysters. So that's why I tell them, go ahead, sue me. Go ahead. I'll see. I think it's Schiester. Is it Schiester? <laughs> oh, kidding, oh, 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 all right, correcty man. You say Shebelith, no. and I say Sebelith. <laughs> yeah, I, I was deliberately doing that because you you sometimes, ironically, you know, you have these funny mispronunciations. And every once in a while, I'm like, Mike, why did you say that that way? Well, that's the way Bugs Bunny said it. And I'm like, oh, okay. Well, I it, I then, guess. okay. I don't, I no like, longer say precipice. I say precipice. <laughs> I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, Mike has to know that it's precipice. He has to. He did, but he just, he, he, he'd heard Bugs Bunny say it so many times that he just forgot. It's not well, a word say that people use. 
you say Zeitgeist instead of Zeitgeist, zeitgeist. and I, th- I just assume that must be a joke too. So I never know when to say, hey, Mike, it's really pronounced this way. So uh, anyway, I just figured Schuster was a low-hanging fruit and I could go for it. Sorry. <laughs> I have always heard in popular culture is Scheister. He's a Scheister It lawyer. is Scheister. It is Scheister. Oh, I was kidding. Okay. <laughs> All right. No, and I did not know it was Zeitgeist. But then again, I did because yeah. poltergeist. So in, in German, Geist is ghost. So yeah, uh, uh, I, the, the holy, the holy ghost is the Heiliger Geist Heiliger in German. Ghost. All right, brother, you got to go. What's on tonight's uh, reconquest? Tonight's episode of Reconquest is called "Time, Eternity, and Eternity." Oh. And, uh, and, and no, it's not that long of a show, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, but we're talking about um, the, the, the contrast between these three modes of duration, and I'm leaning heavily on um, some very learned uh, authors, including the, the great Dominican friar, Father Reginald Garigula Grange, mm. um, whom I read, yeah, so uh, we're talking about, because there's, because there's these different considerations on, you know, so what's eternity? And, 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 and do we actually live in eternity when we die? When uh, uh, the souls in heaven live in eternity instead of in time? Or, and what is this middle thing that St. Augustine said is between time and eternity, namely eternity? So we talk about the nature of that. And um, I don't know if uh, I was told by some of the um, live in studio listeners that it was interesting. Okay, well, I'm sure that it is. You can hear it tonight for yourself at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 p.m. Central here on the Crusade Channel, the last live Christmas contest radio station standing, or Advent contest radio station standing. Brother, next week I uh, I really want to talk about uh, this, uh, uh, unless there's something on the calendar, uh, this Andrew Willard Jones piece about the uh, liturgical cosmos. He just continues to amaze me. I read this guy and I go like, can I hire you to come talk this on radio? <laughs> Will you give talks on my radio station? Well, maybe maybe he'll in, maybe he'll give an interview to you. He wouldn't give one to me. But um, the the, uh, uh, um, the I've read another piece he wrote on this general subject, and it's it, it's it's fascinating. In fact, I wrote something borrowing from him, talking about how he applied the four senses of scripture to. Um, to history and to the, to in, specifically to Innocent the Third's approach to politics, I'll actually drop a link to that in the in the oh in the please chat do because I'm going yeah. to I'm going to wax uh, ineloquent about this and bore people to tears and they'll turn the radio off again. So, uh, but I will reach out to him. I have uh, I have a contact and uh, I'll see what happens. But brother, uh, thank you for another uh, Wisdom Wednesday. We learned a lot today and that's good in the first week of Advent. Uh, God bless you and all the brothers and sisters and the children at the school at the St. Benedict Center. Thank you, sir. God bless you, too, and God bless all our listeners. All right. That's our brother, Andre Marie. Of course, you can read Brother Every Day of the Week at Catholicism.org. Of course, you can read Brother Every Day of the Week at Catholicism.org.